We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you that our Savior was made flesh and he was the temple among us. And we thank you that the apostles beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We thank you that in him we have received grace in the place of Old Testament grace. And we thank you that he is back again in the bosom of you, having come to explain yourself to us. And we thank you that we know you, O God, Father, because he has, be seen, has been seen and he who sees Jesus, has seen the Father. We thank you for the Son who came down to purchase for you people from every tribe and nation and people. We thank you that we have been bought with the precious blood of your Son, and now we stand with him as heirs of the eternal kingdom. We ask that you'd bless our time together now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Jesus tells his disciples, his apostles, in Luke 24, 
as he opens the scriptures to them, that all the scriptures speak of him. And so when you look through the Bible, you cannot help but see Christ. And of course, we see Christ in the fulfillment of all the feasts in the Jewish calendar found uh, most uh, sequentially in uh, Leviticus chapter 23. And we realize, uh, being people who read our Bibles, that even the way God planned things from the very beginning when he created the sun, moon, and stars, the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night, he set them in order to make seasons for a lunar calendar for the nation of Israel. We don't reside under that anymore, but Israel did. And by that lunar calendar, they adjusted their feast days each year. It didn't always come on the same day on a lunar calendar. And so uh, we've been looking at Leviticus chapter 23. And uh, since uh, on this occasion I conceived of this idea, it was approved by the other guys, by the way, uh, I also, having conceived of it, chose the feast I wanted to do first. And so we have been doing them out of order. So today we come to the Feast of First Fruits. And uh, we are going to be looking at it mostly through the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation. Proverbs chapter 3 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths smooth. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor Yahweh from your wealth and from the first fruit of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not, my son, do not reject the discipline of Yahweh. Uh, do not reject the discipline of Yahweh or loathe his reproof. For whom Yahweh loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son in, in whom he delights. Well, right there in this whole sweep of uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding, come uh, three other admonitions, and one of them has to do with first fruits. And it is the same idea that comes out of the feast of first fruits, and it is the same idea that permeates the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, Caleb mentioned it in his prayer that God is the God of lights and the giver of all things good. So whatever we have, 
we may have misused it, we may have abused it, we may be under discipline because of such things, but whatever we have comes from the blessing of God. So if we have good looks, that comes from God's blessing. Some of us didn't get that blessing. <laughs> but all of us have received from the Lord's hand in all different kinds of ways. But the one thing that is spoken of through the scriptures is how God feeds us, takes care of us. And so, uh, you know, people in our congregation here, we all make a different amount of money. Most of us don't know what each other makes. That's all good and fine. But what we make comes from God. Israel was a culture of uh, shepherds and farmers. And so they all lived off the land. And in the Old Testament, there are lots of warnings about following the Lord. And if you don't, then the skies are going to become like brass and there'll be no rain and the land will be dry and you'll suffer. And so what God is looking for is people who pay him tribute called first fruits. Tribute is to recognize that what I get, well, I might be smart, I might not be as smart, I might work really hard, I may not work as hard as other people, but what I get in the end comes because God so wills I get it. And so we give to him the first fruits. When we bring in a crop of grain, we give him the first part of the grain. When we reap the clusters of our vines, we give him the first part of the clusters. When we get a paycheck once a month, the first thing we pay is tribute to God. And the promise here is, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. And in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path smooth. And one way we trust is we believe that if we give the first fruits of what God gives us, he will fill our barns with plenty and he will fill our wine vats with new wine or to put it in modern-day terminology, he'll fill our bank account. Do you trust that? Amen. Amen. That's what First Fruits is about. In the sequence in Leviticus 23, depending on who you are and how you look at it, certainly God knows what he intended to say. But uh, Bible teachers see it a little differently from one another. Not so much differently, but differently, how you organize it. And God's uh, word is just so infinite that, oh, you can organize it in many different ways, and one can't say, well, this is right and the other is wrong. But some people see six feasts in Leviticus chapter 23. Some people see seven. 
There are seven if you count the Sabbath as a feast. It is an appointed time. And each Sabbath day, Israel set aside their work, and they had a holy convocation. They came together like us to worship God, even in the Old Testament, even in the days of Moses, even in the, when they came into the land. Everybody couldn't make it up to the temple every Sabbath, so they had to have uh, synagogues where a Levite would be in charge and they would gather the worship. But then there's a calendar that tells about their life. And the first feast is Passover, of course, as God ransomed them, rescued them out of bondage to Egypt, and began to move them towards the promised land. Just as he has done for us in the person of Christ, he's rescued us out of the bondage of sin, and he is moving us into his eternal kingdom. It's going to take different paths for different people, but when the kingdom is finally consummated, all we who have trusted Christ, we will be there in resurrected bodies. In the Passover, they had a feast of unleavened bread. And the leaven, as spoken of by Jesus in the New Testament, is teaching. It teaches you things. So when you talk about unleavened bread, you are undoing what you learned. And Israel learned a lot of nasty stuff in Egypt. And some of it they even carried with them and still worshipped in the wilderness and when they got into the promised land. But unleavened bread is to teach you to leave the old ways behind. And how do you find out the new ways? You find out the new ways by reading the scriptures. This is how God talks to us. Each time you pick up your Bible and you read it, whether you're really paying attention or not, God is talking to you, and so you ought to pay attention. And he's teaching you new ways, ways of the kingdom, which we call eternal life, life in the new age, the new kingdom. And the new kingdom is somewhat different than the old kingdom. And so in the New Testament, we learn these new ways in Christ. At the Feast of Passover... After the Sabbath that occurred during the Passover unleavened week, because the Passover on a lunar calendar is going to vary, so it doesn't always happen at the same time. After that Passover, then they had the Feast of First Fruits. And uh, these feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, Feast of Weeks, and Feast of uh, Ingathering, or the Grape Harvest, Olive Harvest, these are all seasons in the year when. Uh, they're harvesting, and Passover comes during the first part of harvest, and the Feast of Weeks comes during the last part of harvest. And so the first fruits occurred during Passover, and on the day after the Sabbath, they're to bring in the sheaf of the first fruit, a bundle of grain. And they bring it in, and they give it to the priest, and the priest picks it up, and he lifts it up and waves it around. Well, the whole point is, it's supposed to go up to heaven. It belongs to God, but we can't throw it up there. And so it comes back down. And in this uh, feast, first fruits feast, a lamb is offered. It cannot be a goat. It has to be a lamb. At the Feast of Passover, it can be a goat or 
a lamb. But at feet first fruits, it has to be a lamb. And it has a certain amount of tribute grain because this lamb is, has its throat slit and the blood is splashed against the altar and the lamb is cut up and put on the altar and on top of the lamb is put a tribute. It's grain. And then on top of the grain and the tribute, I mean the lamb, the tribute grain, you pour some wine. It's a full meal. Meat, vegetable, and fruit. You have that every day at your house? Try it. It's healthy. And then it goes up in smoke. And this, this lamb is uh, for the nation, or if we think of an individual, for you and me, we identify with it. Its throat is slit. Its blood is shed instead of our blood. And that is the judgment, the shedding of the blood. When the lamb is put on the altar and fire is put on it, that is not judgment, that is transformation. Fire is the presence of God. You're put into God's fire and he transforms you and you come up to him and he breathes you in, eats you, and it's a soothing aroma. Well, I wish we could take the time to prove that it's a bride meal. But we don't have time for that. But just to stoke your curiosity. So, that's the Feast of First Fruits. Now, this sheaf that goes up has reference by Jesus in John chapter 12, verse 23. Unless a grain of seed falls into the ground and dies, it abides by itself alone. But if it dies, it brings forth fruit. So you plant a little seed in the ground and you can't see it, but up comes this thing that looks a lot different than the seed and there's grains or fruit on that bush or vegetables. That's what Jesus is talking about. The imagery used throughout the Old Testament of moving God's people and bringing them to the promised land is to plant them in the soil. And they'll sprout up like plants with all kinds of good works. That's first fruits. Well, this sheaf that is lifted up is the first fruit of God's work. And so we lift it up to him. That sheaf turns out to be in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent him down to do a task, and he died, and he rose again, and in his death and resurrection, he has much fruit. But he is the first fruit of resurrection. He is the first Born. And so in a picture in Leviticus, we would be lifting up this resurrected person to heaven. We can't do that, but God does it. So in the New Testament, we see the ascension. We see it in the end of Mark chapter 16, verse 19. Jesus ascended into heaven. Now you may think Mark 16, 19 is not part of the Bible 
I feel sorry for you if you think that way, but that's okay. But nevertheless, we see the same thing at the end of Luke, but the same verb is not used, but they're standing there, and Jesus is parted from them, and up he goes. And even so, in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, when the time for his ascension came, he set his face straight forwardly to Jerusalem. So he's marching, marching up to Jerusalem, up to Mount Zion, ascending that's what happens in the Psalms of Ascent. We're ascending to Mount Zion because that is the place where God has chosen to put his name. It's the place he loves forever. There's an earthly Zion and there's a heavenly Zion, the new Jerusalem that you see in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And interestingly enough, that Zion, which is 1,500 miles cubed, is going to come down to the earth. That's God's dwelling place forever. So Jesus was lifted up to that Zion and is pictured as he ascends to Zion to die, be buried, and then rise and go up to Zion. Jesus talks about his ascension in John chapter 20 as Mary discovers Rabboni in the garden. And she falls at his feet and Jesus says, don't touch me. I have not yet ascended to my God. Go and tell my disciples, I ascend to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. And then when you come to volume two, the book of Acts, as Ben told us last week, Luke, volume one, all that Jesus began to do and say, Luke, volume two, called Acts of the Apostles, all that Jesus continued to do and speak. This time it's through the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit who's preparing a bride for Jesus, the church. In that very book, in chapter 1, the disciples were talking to him and saying, oh, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times and epochs that the Father has set by his own will. But here's what you need to do. Wait until you receive what was promised. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then here they are with Jesus, and he is lifted up and disappears into a cloud. Ascension. He is the first fruits of what he came to do. He died for us. He didn't need to die for himself, but he died for us. And then he was raised. And all kinds of people will be raised. There are two resurrections. There is the resurrection that occurs at the moment that you recognize I trust Jesus, and you are made new, called a resurrection in Revelation chapter 20. There is a second resurrection, and that is the resurrection that occurs at what we would call the end of time. In Corinthians, we're told that Jesus is the first fruits 
of those who are resurrected, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 through 24, and then comes the resurrection of everyone else afterwards. So over here, we have Jesus who in A.D. 30 or thereabouts was in a tomb dead as a doornail. Physically, you can't kill God. And he rose from the dead. And then there's going to be the whole picture of all the crop that comes in at the end of time when the kingdom comes to fruition and the dead in Christ will rise. Jesus is the first fruits. Turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 4, John is, uh, he sees an open door and uh, he hears the voice that he heard at the beginning like a trumpet saying, come up here. And in the spirit, he's caught up and he enters into heaven. And in heaven, he sees something that you and I haven't seen, although Israel saw a replica in two or three forms on the earth in the tabernacle and the Solomonic temple and then the post-exilic temple that became the Herodian temple. And then the temple was destroyed, never to be rebuilt again because now, ah, it's come to fruition. We are the temple. God's not going to live in a house. He lives in his people. But in Revelation chapter 4, John is caught up in the heaven and he sees a throne sitter and his appearance is like a jasper and a sardius stone. And he sees a rainbow around him like an emerald stone. And he sees 24 elders who are seated on thrones and they have golden crowns on their head and some people think, well, those are the 12 tribes of Israel represented by a man and the 12 apostles. No, they're not. And he sees a sea of glass like crystal. And he sees seven lamps in front of the throne that are the seven spirits of God. In other words, he sees what you see when you go into the tabernacle. You walk into the first room, and you're walking in, and on the left, you see seven lamps. And right in front of you, you see an altar of incense. In heaven, this altar of incense is the 24 elders. And you see on the right a table of face bread, 12 loaves stacked in two rows, one on top of the other, and the lights over here are looking at the faces over here. And then when you go through the next curtain, you find this Ark of the Covenant with a kephara on top with two golden angels attached to it. John sees all that. Whoops! There's one thing missing. There is no table of showbread in heaven. Why? Because nary a man has ever been there. Those 24 elders aren't men. They're angels. He sees around this throne and in the, in the throne four living creatures. One has a face of a lion. 
One has a face of an ox. One has something like a face of a man, and the other is like a flying eagle. And they cry out day and night without ceasing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And he sees around this throne 24 elders and they have golden crowns on their heads and they give glory and praise to God and they throw their crowns before the throne. It is not men. Some of our hymns are sadly mistaken. It is angels. There's no table to show. Nary a man has been in heaven. We're waiting for the first fruits. The first fruits. Abraham and Moses and David, they're all in what the New Testament calls Abraham's bosom. In the Old Testament, it's a place of shield that has a compartment on one side for the wicked dead and a compartment on the other side for the righteous dead, but they're not in heaven. They're in shield. Never a man has been to heaven. You might say, what about Enoch? Well, Keep pondering on that because I don't have the answer for you. In chapter 5 of Revelation, we see the one who's sitting on the throne and in his right hand is a scroll written on the back and on the front rolled up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel, verse 2, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And nobody's found in heaven, on the earth, or under... Nobody's found. And so John begins weeping because this scroll is held in God's right hand. This is the way the world's going to go, the consummation of the kingdom. If the kingdom is going to come in fruition, if the new heavens and the new earth are going to take place, this book is going to have to be opened, and someone's going to have to read it who has the power to make it happen. Nobody's found. And so John begins to weep. And if you thought, you know, my life is ruined, there's no hope, you might begin to weep too. What am I going to do? That's where John is. Until John hears an angel saying, oh, stop weeping. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's overcome. He can open the book and break its seals. And then he looks and he sees right in the middle of the throne a lamb as if slain, having seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, and seven horns, complete, utterly complete power. And he comes. And he takes the book out of the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. 
Ah, yes, there's not going to be any pause in history. All the promises of the Old Testament and the Gospels and Jesus, they are all going to come through to fruition because Jesus is going to unroll this scroll and it's going to be read and enacted and it's going to be the one who has seven horns on his head, complete power making it happen. What is this? This is the first fruit. Well, of course, when you do your little harvest in Leviticus, that early harvest was probably barley, and you're going to take it to the Lord, and you swing your sickle, and you gather, and you bind and make a sheaf, and you take it. That is a picture of what is going to come in. It tells about your harvest. This is the first fruit. Jesus comes into heaven. And it stirs all of creation. All of a sudden, the four living creatures and the 24 elders are breaking out in praise. These who have harps and golden censers, which are the prayers of the saints, break out into praise. Worthy are you to receive power and riches and honor and blessing and wealth. I'm saying them out of order, but there are seven of them. And the elders fall down. And all of a sudden, he hears this vast host of angels, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, and then joins in all created things that are on earth and on the sea and under the earth, and the living creatures keep saying, amen, amen, which means so be it, so be it. This is truth. And the elders fall down in worship. This is the first fruit. Do you know what that means? Well, that means you're going to look like Jesus because when the crop comes in and you take the first and the best of it, everything else is going to follow suit. Jesus is the first fruit, and on Christmas he comes down and is born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit, and he grows up not to be a little baby, but to be a lamb that's sacrificed. And his blood is sprinkled on the altar. He bears the judgment of God, and you and I go up in smoke transformed. We are the fruit to follow. So, what about first fruits? <laughs> in, in Israel's day, it's a picture of something they're going to be taught about over the centuries, learn about, they don't know about it. But it comes just in a little simple thing that happens when we sit down at our table and we say, thank you God for this food. This is just a picture, a little bit of what you've supplied to this family, this church, this people. 
first fruits. So, we have quite a Savior. And each week that we come and we sit at the table, we are making a proclamation about the first fruits. And we pick up grain and eat it. And we drink blood because Jesus is the first fruits. Well, the first fruits does something, and uh, it's found in Revelation chapter 8. Actually, the first fruits is what operates all through Revelation. But uh, let me just let me just first say, you know, the book is divided by these this scroll, and the scroll is unrolled, and. The scroll has seven seals all the way across, and each seal has to be plucked off. It has a picture on it, has an interpretation to go with it. The fifth seal are those who have been murdered for Christ, martyrs. And they're under the altar, the incense altar. And they're saying, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? Just a little while until the full number of those who are going to be killed as you are come in. And they're given white robes and told to relax. Then in chapter 7, judgment is about to begin and the four winds are held back. And an angel says, wait, we have to seal God's people. And they get a seal in their forehead the beast seal is just a lie a counterfeit of god's seal that comes in the forehead or on the right hand but what do you suppose that seal's going to be a number jesus is lord written across your forehead what do you think the beast seal is going to be oh six 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 Bend over and swipe your head on a scanner to buy your groceries. You know, all kinds of people who just don't pay attention to the Old Testament don't know what they're talking about. At any rate, they're sealed. And in chapter 7, verse 4, we're told the number. 144,000 people are sealed. It is a Jewish group of people. And I have five minutes left. Guess what? A Jewish group of people, and they're sealed. Why? Because trouble's coming. Trouble's coming. And they're marked out for God. What are they sealed with? Well, when you come to chapter 8, we start out in chapter 8 by a picture. Oh, I see seven angels who are given the seven trumpets. And that's what's going to happen. Seven trumpets are going to blow with judgments, a message. It's going to be on land and sea and rivers and heaven. And then there are going to be seven bulls on land and sea and rivers and heaven. And then three added to each of them that are worse than ever. But in in chapter, eight, in chapter 8, verse 2, it says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. 
And another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, and he that he might add it to the prayers of the saints. Upon the golden altar, which was before the throne of God. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. So, you see, that guy's under the altar. They're praying. How long, O Lord, how long? There are other people who aren't dead. They're praying. And that incense altar is just starting back at the bronze altar. The smoke is rising. Then the incense mixes with the smoke and it makes its way up to the throne of God. And then it says in verse 5, And the angel took the censer and he filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it to the earth. And there proceeds peals of thunder and voices and flashes of lightning. What is that? Well, we know what that is. You see, it's just following the feast. This first sheaf is lifted up and goes into heaven as a picture of the crop that follows. And when first fruits is over, you wait seven weeks and the Feast of Pentecost comes because the first fruits is up in heaven and the first fruits sends forth the Holy Spirit. And this is the prayer of the saints. We think of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. When you read the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 11, as we did a few weeks back, what do they receive? The Holy Spirit. And that's what's here in Revelation. The fire comes down, and on the day of Pentecost, fire rested on the apostles like tongues of fire. The Holy Spirit has come. That's what first fruits does. This first fruit goes up into heaven and he casts down on his people the Holy Spirit who goes about the work of transforming his people in the likenesses of Christ. In my time's run out, but just one more thought. It'll only take about 30 minutes. No. Chapter 14 then is uh, paired with chapter 15. In chapter 14, we see the Lamb on Mount Zion, the place that he's chosen, and 144,000 people with him. And in chapter 15, we see a host of people, not on Mount Zion, but on glass mixed with fire. They're up in heaven on the top of the firmament, which is solid, but they can't yet go into the temple. So from Zion to heaven... And they will make their way into the temple in heaven. 
This is a picture of the 144,000 who were sealed, who are described for us in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Then we get a series of angels, and then we come to a harvest. But these people are described in Revelation 14, 1 through 5 as people who have not defiled themselves with women, They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. There is no lie found in their mouth. They are blameless. Well, they're like the Lamb. Of course, when it says they don't defile themselves with women, it's not talking about women being defiling. It's talking about the Old Testament Levitical laws. And we have an illustration of this in the person of Uriah the Hittite, who came home at David's request, his command, And he was trying to cover up his sins. So he was trying to get Uriah the Hittite, who was out battling the enemy as a part of God's Nazarite army, who had to keep themselves from women so they would not become unclean according to the laws of Leviticus. And he wanted him to go down and sleep with his wife so that the pregnancy could be blamed on Uriah the Hittite but he wouldn't do it. And he got him drunk, and he still wouldn't do it. And so this is a metaphor here, a metaphor. It's not a sin to be married. It's not a sin to have relations. No, it's a sin to defile yourself going after another God, saying at the moment of battle, oh, I got to have my wife. She's more important than you, God. That's what it's talking about. No, but these 144,000, no, they didn't do that. But they followed the lamb wherever he went. And where did the lamb go? Well, the lamb went to death. And the rest of the chapter is going to describe their death in terms of two harvests, a wheat harvest and a grape harvest. Ah, Sounds like sacrificial stuff, doesn't it? When a lamb dies, you put some grain on and you put some wine on and then you send it up to God. Well, these 144,000 who follow the lamb wherever he goes, the first fruits, they're just like him. They'll do what he does. And so they're harvested, wheat and grapes. And then the grapes are laid down in a grape trough and... People stamp their foot and trot over them, all this blood. Yeah, it's called the blood of the grape. It's a picture of blood, but it's grape juice, if you will. Flows out. And then we're described it goes up to the horse's bridle. That's not our concern right now. But what this is, they're put in the wine press of the wrath of God. Well... They're not being judged. These, if you, if you know how to read literature, you've got 144,000 standing on Zion, then you look on the other side, now they're standing in heaven. Now, if you can read literature, you know what comes between fits right in there. These are compared to grain and wine that are harvested. And then they're trampled underfoot. It's the Jewish people who do the judging, the killing, the persecuting. And that blood that flows out from all these persecuted people is picked up by God, and it's called his fierce wine wrath. 
And in chapter 16, it's poured out in seven chalices that bring the wrath of God to an end. Now, you see, the whole book of Revelation is waiting for chapter 5. In chapter 4, God's there. There's all kind of praising and talking going on. But in chapter 5, when the Lamb's work is done, and the first fruits comes up right in the middle of the throne, looking like a lamb that's been slain, having seven eyes, the seven spirits of God, and horns coming out of his head, all that power. They've been waiting. And what happens? Heaven busts out with something that we haven't seen in Revelation in chapter 4. It busts out in song. It's one thing to say something. It's another thing to glorify that something into song. Jesus came into the world, well, not on December 25th. It's, that's a tradition. We don't know what day. 25th will do as good as any other day. And we celebrate it. And he came to become the first fruits who went up into the throne. And all of us who are his, ah, he's making us into people like the 144,000. Isn't that something? So on Christmas Day, as we laud our Savior, which is proper and right, we should be thanking him. Ah, the first fruits ascended. I will ascend. The first fruit, look at who he is. I will be like him. Let's stand together. Father, this is a great joyous time around the world, Christmas. And uh, people know that Jesus is the Christ. They probably think it's his last name. They don't know that much about him, but they like the idea of peace on earth and goodwill to men. They like the idea of uh, lots of eating and drinking and giving of gifts. But if they saw the first fruits who opened the scroll, plucked off the seals, blasted the trumpets, and poured the bowls, well, then it would be like Revelation 15. Who will not fear, O Lord? Lord, on this great day that we celebrate, we want our friends and family who have no fear of you at this Christmas time to gain a fear of the first fruits in whose name we pray. Amen.